good, y'all? Dr. T. Hassan Johnson checking in with you. Just had a desire to come through and say a few words real quick. Let some people roll in here. See Officer Charles, what's good with you? Chris, what's happening? Adam, what's the word? Joe, Damon, it's always good to see you. All right, see some of the brothers up in here. GG, what's going on, man? All right, I'll let some people pour in for a little bit, but I definitely want y'all to take a moment, check out some of the things that uh, I'll be talking about. Yep, I agree, Chris. Impression Olympics are something else. DW, what's going on? Mike V, what's happening? Good to see you in here. All right. All right, so as y'all know, we're going to be talking about Neo COINTELPRO and what that means to me. Um, I'm not anticipating holding on to y'all too long, but I had to get this in and we'll see where it takes us. Um, appreciate that support, Joe. Um, Rashid, what's going on? Good to have you for the first time. I haven't gone live in a little minute uh, since we had the kind of Justice League, you know, situation jump off with Dr. Curry and BGS, you know, um, and it was eight of us all together kind of kicking it. So if you haven't had a chance to check that out, go to my channel, look at that, um, kind of dealt with black men's perspectives on protests, which is interesting because you seldom hear black men not only talk about protests, but even at protests were barely put on camera, let alone interviewed, despite that usually the protests are sparked by our deaths. But uh, it's gotten so bad, you got people arguing, and I've heard this repeatedly from feminists in particular, that black men, you know, don't show up to protests at all. And I'm like, you know, aside from the fact that that's absolutely ridiculous, and I've seen black men present at pretty much everyone I've looked at actively protecting other people, actively engaging the police, so on and so forth. Despite all of that, I still hear that black men are present, but nobody wants to talk about the fact that by the time you get equal numbers of black men that show up, um, the police also show up in riot gear. So all of a sudden that, that kind of falls out of the discussion that there might be to the extent that black men are reticent about protests and ask the question, what exactly you know, comes about from it. They also understand that their deaths are, are far more imminent, far more uh, on the table. Appreciate that support, Rodney. Um, and so in that respect, you know, if men have a different experience engaging protests, but are still present, why can't we talk about that? Right. If the police don't even show up in riot gear until black men are present, why is that not part of the discussion about black men's participation? But anyway, that aside, um, even though that does have a connection with what we're going to look at today, that's not the main focal point. Chief in the South, what's going on? Um, Joe, he said, uh, how much pushback do I get from the gynocracy? Quite a bit, quite a bit. I mean, it starts out where they ignore you and then it starts out where they trash you and then they start coming into your comments and trying to wage war. I'm going to talk a little bit about that today because it's a little ridiculous. Marty, what's going on, man? Urban, I see you in here. All right, some people coming in. <laughs> Gigi says, signaling virtuous victimhood as indicators of dark triad personalities. 
Uh, NJ, what's going on? Maleka, how you doing? All right, so we got 71 people in here. If you're on YouTube, please hit the like button. Y'all know the drill. Share, subscribe if you haven't subscribed. I recently broke 5,000, so I want to say thank you uh, to the brothers out there and, and people in general, but most particularly the black men supporting the show. Um, but um, to the extent that I have a few black women watchers, I appreciate y'all too. We just broke 5,000 subscribers. I'm hoping to build uh, a little more than that. Right. So big poke dog. Appreciate the support. For life says, uh, here we go. I have more videos from black men taking a stand and fighting back. It's black men showing up to the protests with guns, protecting women and children. That doesn't, they, oh, but that will get overlooked. Absolutely. Absolutely. It continues to be overlooked. Okay. Strong family unit. Philly in there. All right. All right. All right. So as you guys can see with the tweet that's that's on the screen right now, right? These are the kind of tweets I've been seeing a lot of and brothers have been sending them to me at my request. I asked for that. So I appreciate it. And there's a lot more. I just I, the ones I showed a moment ago was just the file I already had prepared. But I've gotten a lot more. And the amount of vitriol and misandry toward black men is so deep. It's so deep seated that it got me thinking about what exactly we're dealing with. You know, having been born in the 70s, you know, gone through my childhood in the 80s, my young manhood, young adulthood in the 90s professional age and beginning a family in the 2000s, I've seen the transition in a lot of this, a lot of this thinking, most particularly this, you know, Black feminist thinking in regard to Black men and really the impact it's had in general. I've seen a lot of it. And it got me really thinking about what exactly we're really dealing with here, what exactly we're really seeing. Um, and I wanted to put some context, a little bit of context to it. So the first thing I said um, when starting this, obviously in terms of the title, is that uh, this has to do with Neo COINTELPRO. And I'm going to break that down in a minute. Like I said, I'm not going to hold y'all because I got to run to the grocery store and cook dinner for my son. So um, we, it's going to be just a minute. But I had to get this word out and start this conversation. Uh, smooth Groove, appreciate that support. Um, so in looking at it, I'm thinking about what what kind of entity could create the kind of vitriol that I've been seeing. And I've been seeing it snowball. I, I first was introduced to it in the early 80s. My mother had Michelle, um, what's her name? Um, oh my goodness, how do I blank on her name? Well, this is a good thing about having a computer in front of me. Um, uh -huh. Come on, bear with me one second. Yeah, thank you. Michelle Wallace. So my mother had Michelle Wallace's book, Myth of the Black Macho, or is it um, Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman, excuse me. Had that book on, my, on our shelf our whole lives, and I've seen it, and it took me until maybe high school before I cracked it open and looked at it, but I'd seen it all my life. And then, you know, by the time we got to the color purple and these kind of things, I was starting to see this kind of vitriol directed at black men that, you know, was there in the 70s and earlier. I'm not trying to say it wasn't, but it definitely took on its own life, particularly in the 1980s. 
And I, I was always kind of curious about where it came from, how it came about and how it developed, but it only snowballed from that time. And so watching it snowball over those years uh, really has been a trip. <clears throat> I see BGS in here. What's going on? Um, Moada, what's happening? Right. Yeah, I see you, Gigi. I probably I should have looked at the chat. Sorry about that. Appreciate that support. Because um, my memory has been all over the place lately. Uh, Alice Walker, Rodney. Yep, absolutely. Alice Walker um, definitely played a role in that. Not only in terms of the, you know the book, but also the film. Right, the, the real popularization of this kind of misandry became um, common. Became common, and and by the time I reached my teen years. There were no black men that I associated with that had not heard I don't need a man, that had not heard niggas ain't shit, that had not heard, uh, well, the latest iteration of that is black men are trash, but it really came out, of, came out of the same impulse, right? So we had all heard those things by the time we were 16, 17 years old. And it was like, where did this kind of impulse come from? Um, MJ, appreciate that support, right? And I started to kind of delve into it. And when I reflected upon it, I brought I was brought back to COINTELPRO. Now, for those who may not know, and I'm not going to really do an in-depth breakdown, I want you to go check it out yourself for, the, for that. You know, you don't know about COINTELPRO, but Co COINTELPRO stands for Counterintelligence Program. And it was designed um, particularly under J. Edgar Hoover. Um, it's time span roughly from the mid-50s through the 70s, officially speaking, uh, but Hoover oversaw it, and it was basically a program designed uh, to use covert and illegal projects um, initiated by the FBI to surveil, infiltrate, discredit, and disrupt um, various types of movements. And this spanned the gamut. I mean, from Native American movements to communist movements, anti-Vietnam movements, it was a lot of different things. Nation of Islam, and most notably, the Black Panther Party. Now, they also were said to have done some things with the Klan and so on and so forth. Um, but obviously, as the son of a panther, my focus was the impact it had on the black community, right? And coming up into that time period where my father was a panther, one of the things he told me was that, because um, I'm from California, well, no, let me rephrase. We were in California when I was still in my mother's womb. By the time the FBI paid my father a visit and threatened the life of my mother and my grandmother, we moved to New York and I was born in Brooklyn, um, pretty much on the run, right? Um, I ended up coming back to California when I was about five or so and I was raised in the Bay. So born in Brooklyn, raised in the Bay, um, and then came down to LA and then Philly for college and so on and so forth. So anyway, that said, my introduction, so to speak, to COINTELPRO was through the threat of the loss of life from my mother and my grandmother. That was that was my introduction. <clears throat> and so under Hoover, the design of this program was to really undermine um, any of these organizations, most particularly black ones. And the idea that uh, Hoover aspires, uh, articulates at a different point is to prevent the rise of a messiah. Right. To pretend to prevent the rise of a black messiah that might begin to pull people together. And this is important. Right. Because you had a number of people that scared Hoover. Um, and that ranged, you know, from Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture to Elijah Muhammad, of course, Malcolm and Martin. And he surveilled everybody. He kept records on everybody. He blackmailed everybody, you know, threatened them to try and, you know, cajole them into particular directions. But this program 
was was prim primarily designed to prevent any type of momentum that might begin to pose a, a threat right, to the state, at least in terms of the, the culture of the day. <clears throat> okay, Evan, what's up? I see you in there. Um, a few people still coming in. We got 124. So please make sure that, uh, like I said, you're liking, you're, you like the video, subscribe, share. Um, let me get some of these things off my screen here. I can't tell if we're live on Facebook or not. We should be, but let me refresh the screen real, real quick. Give me a minute. Okay, good. So we're broadcasting. It, it didn't show me at first. All right. So anyway, um, yeah, Rodney, Women of Brewster Place was definitely one of those films that added to that. Um, okay. All right. Fred Hampton, absolutely. Um, definitely. Anybody that doesn't know about the life of Fred Hampton, please look that up. Um, incredibly important. Michael, appreciate that support. So, you know, this program, my introduction to it came through the family and through that kind of direct uh, contact with the FBI, which impacted, you know, where we were, how we lived and, and, and functioning on the run for a good period of time. Right. That said, um, as I began to really look at this, I realized that, you know, even going through the 92 uprisings uh, that happened, not just in L.A., but across the country, you know, there's documentation that, you know, highly suggested that, you know, uh, COINTELPRO was still functioning even in, a, in any kind of informal manner, right, where they were they were looking at the gang truces that were happening and looking to undermine those gang truces. And there's a film that I still show to this day uh, that highlights that in my classes, looks at the or it even goes through the origin of gang activity, but then transitions all the way up through the uprisings and kind of shows how various men would be taken from one neighborhood, left in, in another neighborhood to instill you know, fighting, you know, they said the police would jump into uh, certain cars, drive, you know, people's cars that were well known, drive them into other neighborhoods and start shooting up places to instill and reinstitute some degree of warfare. And in many ways that could be argued to have been successful. But that that said, you know, these types of practices never went anywhere. But I began to think to myself, what does that look like in 2020? And of course, we could take it back to 2015 when we saw the, you know, the death of Michael Brown and the rise of this new era of protest, right, led more particularly by black women, but a particular type of black women, right, the kind of black um, uh, feminist, you know, kind of framework that we saw uh, popularized by BLM. I think 2015 in that respect marks, a, you know, a wholly new kind of entrance to this, but it had bubble, been bubbling under the surface for quite a while. So I got to thinking, okay, we know how COINTELPRO functioned in the 70s and, and the 60s for that matter. We saw what they did to the Black Panther Party, uh, you know, sending letters supposedly authored from one person like Huey to Bobby Seale, you know, causing disruption and confusion. Agents, trained FBI agents, infiltrating organizations, reporting back, disrupting you know, how the organizations function, the mission of those organizations, so on and so forth. And I thought, okay, what does that look like in 2020? What is it we're seeing? Well, I think there are at least four different levels. Yes, Joe, thank you. I forgot to mention the name of it. Bastards of the Party. Absolutely. I, I apologize. Um, yeah, Bastards of the Party is, is the film I show. That's the documentary. 
is it Judd? Is that how you pronounce your name? So that's, yeah, that's it. And if you can find it, it's hard to find. It's hard to find. But if you can find it, uh, sometimes it's on YouTube and sometimes I, I can't find it at all. So uh, excellent documentary. But anyway, um, when I started to think about it, I, I thought, well, what are the what are the things we're seeing now? Well, the first definition, the first level of what I would call Neo COINTELPRO is the, what we call the traditional agent structure, right? So just like you had in the 50s through the 70s, you have trained agents that have a particular purpose to infiltrate organizations, to monitor what's going on. Um, I do think that there are organizations that are more so um, directed and spawned um, by intelligence organizations, more so than just being grassroots organizations later infiltrated. Because um, as we can see, with the likes of key feminists who were paid by the CIA very early on in the rise of feminism. We know that that relationship is happening. Um, so I think that's definitely happening. But but the idea of the trained agent, uh, I don't think has the same level of importance it had in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And I'll get to why in a moment. But I do think they exist. And I think we have organizations that are designed to offset the grassroots movements before they even get started. I definitely think that's in place. Um, yes, Joe, there's another one called COINTELPRO 101. Definitely check that out. Evan, yes, Gloria Steinem, and she's not alone. Um, definitely in that. Marvin, appreciate that support. So that, in terms of that, you do have that, that dynamic in place, but I don't, I actually think it's gotten past that. I think we've snowballed to another point. So one of the major differences between the past and now is the rise of social media, Right. And this is a time period that we live in now where you could literally influence the entire world just typing something on your phone. I mean, this is an unprecedented era in terms of technological access and media access, right? So that said, how hard is it to create a dummy account, right? On, on Twitter or Facebook, where you just post a picture of yourself as, as a black man, a black woman, as whatever, and just start writing the most vile things possible, right? Um, some of the things that I've been witnessing, some of the, the memes, some of the, the tweets and the Facebook posts that I've been sent, these are coming from people with 20 followers, you know what I'm saying? Just a few followers, and yet they're writing stuff like, you know, I, you niggas can't die fast enough. And this is particularly, I'm talking mainly about the ones written by supposed black women, right? Um, and I'm watching these and I'm just kind of like this. This is interesting. Right. You know, I've seen the ones and, and this has been from the last five or six years. Stop having black babies, black male babies, excuse me, you know, kill black male children. I'm seeing these posts over the years on social media. But again, it'll be from accounts with like 10 friends, but it's viral. Right. And it's going around everywhere. And I'm just kind of like, OK, there's something more going on here than um than I think we're being told. So I think there's there's this way that uh, social media is definitely providing, you know, a platform that obviously doesn't have to be held to any scrutiny because anybody can be anybody now, right? Uh, they can be white, they can be FBI agents, they can be all kinds of things. So I think social media is definitely one level of this neo COINTELPRO framework where people can misrepresent themselves and cause all kinds of disruption, right? That impact people. The next level I refer to as agentless agents. And I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to give you an example of that. But I'm going to start with a video. Uh, so we're only going to watch about a minute of it. I have no idea 
if they will shut me down. I generally don't show a lot of stuff in my videos, but we'll see if I can get away with it. If they do shut me down, I'll start right back up again. So um, just bear with me. Um, let me see here. <clears throat> For some reason it's not coming up. Why is it not coming up? Okay, there we go. So bear with me here. This is Dr. Bobby Wright, early 1980s. This is a lecture you should definitely check out on his book, Menticide. Um, hold on, damn it. I don't think I turned the sound on. So at least let me make sure I get it right this time. Okay. So this is on his book, Menticide. We're only going to watch a minute of it, but I urge you to go check out this entire lecture. Very powerful, very important. Um, but this is... Uh, something I think we'll find of interest. Check it out. Class. We all know what they care. See what happened in the 60s. Why we lost the battle in the 60s. Why you never hear nobody talk about the 70s. How many of you people here talk about the 70s? Nobody. Everybody's a boy in the 60s. And here we are in the 80s. You know, they, you know, nobody talks. Because in the 70s, those whites regrouped and wiped us out. You see, here's what happened. White women saw their men in trouble. And like all female animals, anytime the male gets in trouble, the female attacks. That is a law of nature. A law of nature. If you don't believe it, we can prove it in a zoo anytime you want to. <laughs> now, what happened, white women came out and captured our women. And convinced us that white women were not as racist as white men. And convinced us, or convinced our women, that they would place them above their husbands, their brothers, their lovers, their children, their sons. And we said, then the white gays came out and convinced our gays it was a gay struggle. <laughs> and stole our gays, you know. Okay. White students came out and grabbed our black students said it was a student struggle. And wiped out our black students. And all of a sudden, we have to wonder, well, here's a fight. You know what I mean? You know, it, it, it's not about. So now they're coming up with books such as Book of. Okay. Like I said, I'm only going to show a minute of it because Dr. Wright is, is intriguing as hell. I can go through and show the whole rest of it and forget that I'm in a show. So uh, definitely check that out. Um, uh, all right. Um, appreciate that support. Uh, XAW as well as Black Sand. Thank you. Uh, but it's interesting what he's talking about. Right. So he, he talks about the way in which the struggle along ideological lines is broken apart in the 1970s in response to the 1960s. And we can talk about that on a variety of levels. Right. So in one sense, we're looking at it in terms of how it breaks up the, the you know, the kind of community, particularly the activist community on, in, in, in the same lines that we see today. Right. Gender lines, sexual lines, you know, ideological lines. When he talks about class struggle, he's talking about, you know, the impact of Marxism. And he goes into more depth on his critiques of Marxism, but he's talking in this particular moment about how the ideological split takes place and it begins to spread, you know, this dynamic apart. And it's interesting that uh, by the time we get to the late 1980s, we now have a formal theory, right, intersectionality that begins to frame 
these kind of identitarian politics in very you know con concrete categories. So what you have happening in the early 70s in a way becomes concrete by the time you get to the late 80s where these identitarian politics separate out what was prior to that a much more robust kind of unified black struggle. I mean, any critiques you have of the civil rights movement, you, you know, we all have them. It's, it is what it is. But at the very least, it was the last, we could say it was one of the last struggles we saw where it was predicated on a, co a collective black community. And when you get to the basis of that, and I've said this before, it was based in the church, not necessarily strictly along religious grounds. I mean, for about a century, that was the only place we could legally congregate, you know, in, in terms of the origins of the black church and political activism. So there, there's, there's something there as far as that, but really civil rights movement was one of the last major movements that was really based on the black family, right? And so it's no it's no accident that by the time we get to the early 1970s, the mid 1970s, we start to see the split of the black family. Right. We talked about this before with the advent of um, no fault divorce, with the impact of family court policy, leaning heavily in, you know, to the interests of women, uh, to the rise of um, birth control, primarily for women. You know, five major forms. I mean, five major types of birth control and in uh, 30 different forms and that none of those include abortion and yet black men men in general to this day are still dealing with the same things we've been dealing with since the 50s right condoms abstinence pull out method right i mean so it's interesting once we see those kinds of impacts they dramatically affect the black uh, the black family right and so it, it, it's what dr wright is pointing to is how this split begins to take place now, what I'm saying is that when we look at from Dr. Wright's observation to now, one of the things we see is a snowball effect, right? A snowball effect to the degree that these different identitarian categories are now so well ensconced, so concretized, so crystallized that you can expect the kind of warfare to go on. It was no surprise to many of us in these circles, these, you know, these black male circles, that when the protest for George Floyd jumped off, you could almost count. I mean, it was almost robotically predictable what kinds of responses they were going to get. And I just wondered how long it was going to take. And sure enough, it only took a couple of days. The vitriol against George Floyd, the vitriol against Ahmaud Arbery and how that became about black men, these ideas about black male privilege, these ideas about um, black male toxicity, you know, toxic masculinity, all of these things predictably, predictably came to bear. And then it kind of morphed into who cares most for the community. And, and that care is measured by who participates on camera in open protest. So in other words, who the camera captures will be the people we regard as those who care most for the community. And over and so now you had, you know, network news telling us and presenting it to us on covers of, ma of, of online magazines like Time and whatnot, Rolling Stone, that it's black women who are carrying the community, that care more. Black men, and the subtext, of course, is black men don't care, black men don't show up. And so even though you have these male painted uh, magazine covers, they're showing very little black male presence except either in absence, in death, or as children, right? And so from that framework, we're supposed to walk away with the idea that black men don't care, never cared, and haven't really contributed anything uh, to, you know, the movement toward 
you know, a more just, you know, kind of presence for black folk, right? Black men just have, have, have had really nothing to do with it. And if anything, it, you know, it's really been black women and black men have oppressed black women to take whatever due credit they had to the extent they had it. And then, you know, kind of did, just didn't care. And these kind of general ideas that don't even have to be, you know, pointedly articulated. They just have to be assumed. They just have to be suggested, right? And this is where we find ourselves now. And so as I look at this, I'm kind of like, okay, you know, th this, this, this seems very contrived. It seems predictable. It seems like something that most of us can see coming from a mile away. And yet, at the same time, it still occurs, right? So I call this, you know, the, age, the era of the agentless agents, the agentless agents, right? Where you have people who have been, you know, who've had batteries put in their backs based on ideologies that they've been trained into. Right. And we've seen these ideologies take hold in terms of most particularly coming out of the university systems. Right. A lot of this comes out of, you know, these kind of formal women's studies programs. Almost all of them function in a, in a completely, you know, typical and, and, and predictable, you know, kind of feminist way, which is really interesting when you think about it. Because if you look at like Africana studies, if all Africana studies programs were, I don't know, Pan-Africanists, or they were all, you know, Black Marxist or whatever, there'd be a problem. Everybody would take issue with that. It would be considered linear. It would be considered, you know, it, it, there's not enough range to it. So when you go to an Africana studies or Black studies or whatever program, there, there's so many variations on how they can present themselves. And a lot of times you'll even have faculty that are in different ideological schools of thought under the same umbrella program. So you get introduced to black feminism and black Marxism and, and then Pan-Africanism and so on and so forth. You get introduced to that, right? In the last few years, I've been making sure that my students walk out with an understanding of the ADOS movement, right? That's, that's something you're supposed to get. But when we look at these women's studies programs, they're overarchingly feminist in their orientation as if there's no other ideology, no other school of thought. It's almost like a religion, right? And this is where many black women get those feminist narratives from, right? There was a time period that for the most part, black women wouldn't even identify as feminist in any orientation unless they had been to college. That was the formal kind of introductory point, at least until you got to the likes of people like Oprah or Terry McMillan, when they began to popularize these kind of feminist ideas now you had black women, for example, that, you know, had never picked up bell hooks or Patricia Hill Collins or, you know, or Kimberly Crenshaw. But they could tell you what they stood for, not knowing that these were basically feminist ideas. And a lot of that is because the film and the music industries began to kind of propagate those ideas in the popular domain. Right. And so this is where we see what I refer to as the agentless agents. Right. You, you don't have to be formally trained anymore by the FBI. You don't have to be initiated. You don't have to be a law enforcement. I mean, these ideas now have become believable and accepted and internalized, right? To the degree that, like I said, it's almost predictable the kind of responses people are going to give you when they see a black male that's been shot or killed by the police or so on and so forth, right? And the response is visceral. The hatred is visceral. I had a, 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 a woman come into me. I've been having this lately. Women, you know, uh, feminists in particular coming into my chat, uh, my comments on my face Facebook posts to argue. Doesn't matter how much data you cover, you know, with many of these people. Doesn't matter how much historical, you know, kind of uh, narrative you cover. It they argue for what Chris Rock refers to as distance and irritation. 
I mean, there's literally one person that came in and argued. There was like over 175 comments going back and forth. And you would think you were talking to a, 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 an eighth grader. I mean, it, it didn't matter how much you presented, how much information. The point was not to come to some kind of understanding. The point was to disrupt this space of black men talking to one another. And understand, this is something we didn't have in many instances until the social media movement, you know, social media, the rise of social media. And of, of course, you know, YouTube, uh, we didn't have that because, you know, from the 80s to the 90s, the best you could do was the barbershop. You know, the best you could do was the locker room. All of those spaces got infiltrated because it was they were marked as inherently sexist, inherently misogynist, not in terms of what people did, but because they existed. Right. And so all of them got kind of undermined in that way. And so there's this general idea that if you have male spaces that don't involve females, they're inherently sexist. If you have female spaces that don't involve males, that we're just not going to talk about that. Right. So there were no real spaces where men could really reflect on what was happening to them. So what I have happening now is, you know, whether I post something myself or I post Dr. Ron Neal or Tommy Curry or, you know, uh, Green Gorilla, if I post something um, that gives black men a vocabulary for making sense of something they've experienced within their own families, especially if you're raised in single parent, single mother households, if you've got a family that's pre predominantly female, you're having these experiences that you can't explain you don't have the language for. Sometimes you accept them. Sometimes you outwardly rebel um, and go through all the trials and tribulations that come with that. But when you first start to hear black men describe their experiences and they sound just like yours and you're like, wait a minute, I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. He, he said exactly what I went, went, went through. I have men who are in my comments who are like, yes, this makes perfect sense to me, but I never could figure out how to say it. Right. I will inevitably have somebody come in and it's usually, well, again, I don't know if it's actually a woman or what, but it's a woman presented, at least in social media, who will come in to disrupt those discussions just to disrupt them. No argument really being made, you know, coming in with the base assumption that all the men in there are inherently wrong. Without a matter of fact, a lot of the time they're not even reading the post. Or if I write a blog, they're responding to the title. If I post a video again, they're responding to the title. They often haven't read anything. They haven't watched anything. Even if I'm posting Dr. Bobby Wright or I'm posting whatever, they completely dismiss the point of what's being posted because it's not to come to any understanding. This is what, um, you know, Rice Mujahid, I had him, you know, a video of him on my, my show a couple of videos ago. And he talked about, you know, coming to the conclusion that many of the women that were criticizing him because of his statements and reflections on what his ex-wife did with the property he bought, he said he stopped arguing with them when he figured out that none of this had to do with actually exploring the issues between black men and women or even him and his ex-wife. They had to do with denigrating him simply to denigrate him. And that's what I see happening in these discussions with black men who in many ways are trying to find their footing trying to figure out what actually happened, why they grew up the way they grew up, what experiences they had and what they meant and what exactly a gynocracy is and how it functions, especially considering that there's nothing in mainstream media that suggests that a gynocracy even exists, that, ex that suggests that in the black community, you actually have not necessarily a matriarchy, but you know, a black gynocracy. You have leadership and rule by women. Nobody wants to talk about that outside of these small spaces that men are developing amongst themselves, right? So that said, you know, to have people come in and constantly disrupt but not make a point, 
not argue for anything with by any rational means, you start to ask these questions. So the agentless agents idea is basically that which where I'm referring to people who have been indoctrinated with certain ideologies and left completely untouched by others, right? Only getting certain, certain, you know, kind of approved ideologies, especially if they're coming out of school, grad school in particular, but, you know, kind of bringing those ideas into the mainstream space as if they're a religion, as if they're an inherent right unto themselves. And this is what we're seeing, right? So now you have a collective of people who engage in this and, and I don't necessarily believe they all have to be agents or anything of that nature. It's, it's, it's really about shifting the mind states you know, on a wide scale, primarily through using the, the academy as an incubator of only, only very specific ideas. And I've said this before, the absolute proof to that is for every, every college you've been to that had a women and gender studies program. First of all, let me ask you a question. How many of those women and gender studies programs did you see heterosexual men as tenured faculty in? Don't worry, I'll wait. How many male studies programs have you seen? At best, you'll have one teacher teaching a class on men. And if he's not teaching it from a feminist standpoint, the class will usually peter out in a couple of years in terms of students taking it. We have, to my knowledge, one men's studies program in the United States and one in Scotland. I teach one class every spring on black on the black male experience, one class. And we cover the gynocracy, we cover the manosphere, and but I don't I don't I don't describe the manosphere. They have to listen to the people in the manosphere and, and, and come to terms with what they, and then, then they have to address what they've heard. We're not just going to gloss over it because if men are speaking, especially in spaces that in, in a manner they never have before, and we're teaching a men's studies class, then that's, that's material to be studied. I don't care if I like it or don't agree with it or what you're going to study it. You know, so everybody we study don't, it isn't necessarily somebody I agree with, but the fact that we're having a men's studies class and men are speaking, especially in spaces where they're not welcome anywhere else, then we definitely have to study that. But see, that's the thing. That attitude is supposed to be pervasive in the academy where you study for the sake of learning, but that's not what's happening, right? And many argue that's not that's never what been what's happened, but that was at least the idea presented to us that we're going to study for the sake of learning. But now we're just being indoctrinated. And so I watch students graduate with their indoctrination. And I can't contrib can just contribute to that without bringing something of substance to it. And it's often met with vitriol. I know black male scholars who've been fired simply for having students read a passage from myself or Dr. Curry or whomever else. I've, I've known black men and I've experienced this myself where I've had to contend with deans and provosts simply because I posted stats on black men and didn't center black women, which ironically wasn't even the case because I usually, if I'm covering gender, I cover you know black women and then I come to black men. And so the problem isn't that I haven't centered black women, it's that I bothered to talk about black men at all outside of the framework of them strictly being monsters. It's unwelcome. It's not received well. And my students, those especially who've been well ensconced in feminism are often shocked. There'll be seniors, there'll be grad students sitting in my class finding out for the first time about the actual numbers of black men killed 
by the police or the actual numbers of black men who are incarcerated, not the rates, you know, or they start to play with the rate of arrest between black women and men and the rates. No, we look at the actual numbers. This is the first time. It'll be their senior year. There'll be master's students sitting in my class. That's the first time they've been introduced to, to the actual data regarding black men. Right. And that's the only time I've actually seen them actually, you know, really grapple with the information is when they're forced to read it in a class setting where I'm giving you an exam. But outside of that, especially in social media. nah. You know, they'll skip over it while arguing with you about what you posted and not look at any of the data. You know what I mean? It got so bad. Even a few weeks ago, I had to produce a chart just to actually show the number of black men, women and LGBTs killed by police because there was so much mystery around it, right? Trans black men are killed at the highest degrees than anybody and black women's murders by police are higher than anybody's. And you saw people making these grandiose statements with no data and it was accepted. And that's my problem. It was accepted and it has been accepted for decades because the same kind of thing happened to me when I was in school. I sat in many a women's studies class, black feminist studies class, literature class, and I heard these things espoused by the professors. No charts, no data, no citation, nothing, just statements. And so, you know, when you challenge people with that, but they're not even bothering to listen, it becomes very telling that what we're dealing with here is not an actual conversation. We're dealing with an idea that has been propagated to such a degree that you have people serving against really the interests of the black community without even knowing it and doing so with zeal. Right. Um, I want to thank BGS and, and, and Ian uh, in the comments because I haven't been keeping up. So I appreciate them in there engaging people. I want to thank Solus for the support. I'm trying to see who else. Big Cheese. Appreciate that. Uh, D Remedy. Um, you know, appreciate the support. Uh, and I think I mentioned Xavier. Uh, so if I overlooked you, I apologize. But I'm just, it, 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 I'll tell you what makes it even harder when you have nobody to talk to, right? You know, um, this happened to me in graduate school, you know, trying to, to it, it, and I'm not going to say by any means that I had a, 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 a concrete idea of what was going on with black men. I had a question, but there was nobody I could ask. Because in that setting, the only people that talked about gender were approved of by those who've been you know, trained in women's studies and feminism. So you really couldn't have a conversation outside of what men, what men had done wrong to women. That was the primary narrative. And if you went against that, there was something wrong with you. To this day, you know, I live in Fresno. There's not many people that I can talk to here about that. So even in engaging this idea of what it means to talk about a neo-COINTELPRO. Black men, you know, through social media are talking to one another. But then again, we have our own agents, and I fully believe that. People who are causing disruption in a whole other way. You got black men in, in here, for example, who are talking about the problems they've had with divorce, the problems they've had with family court, the problems they've had with child support, the problems they've had with how women have been socialized in particular ways, and they're trying to grapple with those issues. And you'll have people come in that'll just come in and, and really just say, you know, just kind of promote just a blanket hatred for black women. And I'm like, OK, I know brothers that feel that way. But at the same time, 
most of the black men that I hear that are grappling with issues with family and understand it's not just about getting your heart broken by some girl. It's about the black family and black family production. Right. It's about how black men and women relate on a variety of grounds, economic, political, so on. and So all of these things are affected by our relationships. So it's not just this arbitrary issue over who, who you know, whether or not you got a girl or she turned you down because you, you, you weren't handsome enough or whatever. It, it's not even about that. It's actually about that black family formation and production. And so when I've seen these men talking about their frustrations, they're not even coming from a place of hatred. Most of the time they're trying to understand how the hell this happened and why is it happening to so many black men, but we, we, we haven't been able to really form a language around it until the last few years. How can it get this far? And yet in certain spaces, mainstream spaces or academies or whatever, for you to bring it up is considered heresy in and of itself. How did we get to that point? That's what I hear a lot of black men asking and they're unwelcome for asking it. But then you'll have somebody, apparently a male, who will come into the discussion and just be like, oh, you know, F all of these, you know, Bs or whatever. And it's just like, okay, there is that, but I think there's more going on. You know what I mean? And that's where I go back to, the, you know, the manipulation of social media. And, and in many ways, the ways in which I think that there are grounds for a very critical gender discourse in the Black community that needs to happen. But I also think some of this is contrived. I think some of this is, is, is you know, flames being fanned um, for the purpose of disrupting, right, Black community functions. I do think that those two things are happening at the same time. And we have to be, we have to learn how to walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. Because there's a lot of different sub-dynamics that nobody talks about. I was talking to Kendra last year, or I think it was last year. And she was, you know, and she talks about this on her show, Crimson Cure. She talks about the ways in which among women, women will attack her, feminists in particular, because she's she's not towing the feminist line. Right. And I've heard this from another a number of other women, women I've run across on social media and in person who advocate for black men and will be attacked, especially on social media by other so-called women online just for doing so. Now, some of it is very much, you know, living people. And then some of it is these faceless people with these weird accounts. I had like five or six women supposedly come into my comments last week. None of them had a friend count listed in Facebook. I couldn't see when they started their accounts. They weren't friends of mine. They just came into the comments solely for the purpose of disrupting the conversation. And as soon as I deleted one, within 30 seconds, another one popped in using the same talking points and speaking in the same way. There's a lot to what's going on that is manufactured. And it's difficult to know who is doing what. But at the same time, there's a conversation that needs to be had, and it needs to be had in a very robust and unfettered way. Most particularly with black men who have been socialized in many ways from birth to serve black women's interests. And it's, it's very deep in how we've been trained. You know, I remember I won't go into any great detail because I don't I don't talk about myself a lot. And that's not because I'm hiding anything. I just don't you know, I think it kind of takes away sometimes from what I'm saying. But I did have an experience a few years ago that I reflected upon. I, I remember I was courting is not the right word. I was I was stepping to this woman. Who. How do I put this as a white colleague of mine and I would talk about, you know, he would ask me about it. He was trying to understand because he's raising black sons. 
But he would ask me questions about what was going on because on the outside, she seemed kind of hostile. And what I was trying to explain to him is, no, that's not hostility. She's attracted to me. <laughs> and so, and so it, I was observing myself in that instance, the way I interacted with her, despite the hostility, despite the arguments she would try to start, despite her outward behavior, I could key in to what was going on beyond that. And sure enough, I got with her. But, you know, after that relationship ended, I reflected on that. I was like, how exactly did I get to a point where I could read somebody who was outwardly hostile to the point where I knew where she was coming from the entire time and still managed to get with her? How? Because I've been socialized into an environment where the very idea of feminine expression is considered weak. And that's by the women. And so I learned to interpret through, regardless of how they acted outwardly, I learned how to interpret beyond that and engage her as a man. But, you know, should I have to do that? That aside, I'm simply saying in that regard, the hostility, the frustration, many black men have been socialized to either ignore or endure. Right. Much of the time, by the time, it, you know, for some of us that, that have dated out, as they call it, we're often surprised about not having to play those kind of you know games with other groups. But the idea is simply that, you know, black male, female anger, expressions of disrespect, hostility, so on and so forth, have become so common. And whether it's a matter of art imitating life and life imitating art, it's so widespread that to bring it up, black men are immediately dismissed from the conversations unless they're having conversations with themselves. And even then sometimes. Right. But I'm simply just trying to get at, you know, this 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 current zeitgeist about how uh, we think about the community, how we think about our roles in it, how we identify uh, particularly with black men, there's such hostility, there's such deep-seated institutionalized misandry that it's widely accepted. Widely accepted, right? Where you can actually, you know, use black men's deaths for a platform that has very little to do with black men and then turn around and tell black men that they're not grateful for your activism and that they fundamentally are cowards and they don't participate and, you know, the, the black men are trash narrative. I mean, these things have become so common, we expect it. And we need to challenge it. But at the same time, I think we need to also acknowledge that some of this shit isn't happening the way it's being presented. Some of it isn't. Some of it isn't. And I don't, I'm not yet sure how we can discern between the two. Um, but it, But we do have to acknowledge that it's happening. You know, we do. I mean, I think we've seen that kind of thing in hip hop, for example, especially in the late 80s, early 90s, when we saw record companies begin to take over hip hop and identify which kinds of artists even got deals. Right. What were the what was the subject matter they talked about? That's a really a, an easily answerable question. Right. How many public enemies did we have? How many KRS ones did we have? How many people did we have that were willing to have certain kinds of conversation versus what we were presented by many a record company? Right. Which really, in a very short period of time, streamlined the subject of conversation in hip hop. Right. To a very fine point where hip hop became only about a certain number of things by the time you, you hit the mid 90s. That was a very different transition from the early 80s and onward. That kind of corporate infusion into hip hop is what I'm saying has been happening with um, how we understand gender, most particularly along feminist lines the same type of corporate corporate influence. And there are people that have pointed that out in much more detail, 
right? Chuck D himself has, uh, uh, Wise Intelligent has, there are a number of others that have looked at how these things played out, you know, in very distinct ways. But we have to get to the point where we can have these conversations and we can tease some of this out. Because I do fundamentally believe that our conversation is being disrupted by a lot of disingenuine uh, kind of uh, perspectives. I apologize for not looking at the chat. I've, I've been getting better about doing it, but not today. I'm a little distracted. Um, I'm also a little pissed because, you know, again, looking at some of these people coming into my chat, and I'm not sure if they're women or men or what, but I do know that something about it doesn't doesn't feel right. And so I'm calling it Neo COINTELPRO to account for actually trained, actual trained agents, but also account for the impact of, of social media and the impact of policy, right? We also have to talk about the impact of policy, the impact of, of uh, the university system, the impact. These things provide material advantage for those who are willing to participate. You know, a number of years ago, when I was in graduate school, I would argue one of those mechanisms was the Ford Fellowship. Those not familiar, the Ford Fellowship is, is considered, you know, for the most part, a pretty big deal. And it paid really well and it's considered, you know, fairly prestigious. I managed to get one while I was in grad school. And at the time, I got it, you know, main, mainly because the dissertation I was writing, you know, I was in cultural studies. So a lot of that was rooted in post-structuralist, you know, post-modernist thought, nothing concrete, you know, uh, one of my one of my mentors used to call it naval picking studies, right? Um, I didn't find that the people I knew who were doing concrete work on statistics, on social change, on historical analyses, I didn't find that those people, by and large, I'm not speaking for everybody who's ever won a Ford Fellowship by no means, but I didn't find that those people, you know, were the ones that tended to get those awards. <clears throat> And, and then and there's a book that has come out about that, including the Ford, that I um, I don't recall the title of at this moment. I do apologize. But at the end of the day, I'm simply saying that um, I think there's a role that various institutions, be they corporate, private, or whatever, play in this in the discourse, in the in the in the in the engagement of ideas among the black intelligentsia, and it's very similar to the role uh, that you know record companies played in the production of hip hop. And it's designed to preemptively disrupt black formations. So now you don't have to wait for a, a Huey P. Newton, a Bobby Seale uh, to start up an organization. I think what we saw in 2015 was a framework where you could co-opt very early on a movement before it even developed leaders. And you could co-opt it with ideology. And that ideology was so widely seated amongst the wide population of folk that in the right circumstance, their behavior is predictable. And they can take over grassroots movements. This is why I had Nyota Uhuru on my show several times, because she was there. She witnessed it. It happened. It's still happening. And all throughout the vitriol toward black men as ever present as it has been in the last few decades, right? We're raised with it now. Again, by women who may have never formally picked up a book on feminism, but have the same talking points and the same ideas. So that's kind of really one of the things I just wanted to put on the table. 
And I wanted to put that on the table because I'm going to be very explicit. I mean, at least for me. Um, I love black men. I love my brothers. I've had too many experiences sitting at the feet of father figures, grandfather figures, brothers, and even sons. Oh, hell, I'm getting to the point where I'm even having interactions with, you know, kind of ceremonial grandsons and learning from all of them. I see so much in black men that go, that goes ignored. The beauty, the pain, the frustration, the rage, even all of that can be beautiful. And ain't nobody mad at the rage when it's needed, right? When black men are, are standing up, ain't nobody mad at it then. But at any other time, it's anyway, let me not go off on that. But in, my point is, I love my brothers. I love black men. And, and I will never stop making sure that the way black men are regarded is rooted in accuracy, rooted in truth, rooted in something beyond somebody's mood or their personal experience with a brother from a couple of whatever decades ago. And that somehow paints the picture of how all black men have to be regarded. I will always fight against that. But at the same time, I have to also regard that a lot of this is a product of ideas and material treatment from outside of the community and has instigated and shaped how black men are perceived and treated within the community. And so as much as is on YouTube, we talk about SYSBM, we talk about you know, MGTOW, we talk about the brother pill, we talk about, I mean, there are all these different approaches to looking at black men. I, I, I want to just make sure that I put on the table, some of this doesn't feel, not, not what black men are talking about, but some of the vitriol we get um, doesn't feel real. We have to deal with it. We have to, it is no question. We, we have to deal with it for what it is, but I am now convinced especially this last few months. And I, I mean, I thought about this the last couple of years, but really since 2015, but in the last kind of few months, I just had it confirmed that a lot of this is orchestrated. So my only way of dealing with that is to speak from what I know to be true. I come to the table as a, as a, a, you know, an academic, you know, I've been teaching for 22 years, um, but I accept that I can learn from anybody. Um, I, I accept there's quite a bit that I don't know. I don't stand up here trying to pretend I know everything. I just know what I've studied in my lane. That said, I'm going to hold whoever I'm engaging with accountable to the data, accountable to what is measurable. I'm open and willing to listen and engage something outside of that framework. But if you come with emotions, if you come with a dismissive attitude, if you come with just flippancy and bullshit, I can't support that. But that's, you know, but we have to we have to be able to move past that. So I'm not going to hold y'all much longer. T Fitness, I appreciate the support. I just want us to get to get to a point where we can have an honest conversation, especially around black men and not do so in a manner that's being controlled or influenced to the best of our ability by external means. And I mean external, even when I talk about the ideologies that some of us in the black community have internalized and have weaponized against each other. You know, I've heard black women talk about this for several decades in terms of their experiences with black men. 
but I find that nobody's allowed to have that conversation about what black men experience from the community as well. And so that said, I wanna do it and I wanna participate in that to the extent that we hold true to what we know um, and begin our conversations from that place. So I urge my brothers to continue doing that. That's what I see black men doing, especially in my circles online. And um, I'm happy to see it, you know, but we got to stand up to this because this bullshit is getting ridiculous. So that said, like I said, I'm not going to hold you too long. Um, got to go prepare dinner for my son, but I wish y'all well. I love y'all. Um, stay up and definitely uh, join in the conversation in the comment section. And, you know, if I'm wrong, let me know. If you've seen something that confirms what I'm saying, let me know. But let's engage this dialogue, man, because some of this shit is just not real. And I don't know. I don't know how we're going to address it, but we can't ignore it. All right. So anyway, y'all, y'all take it easy. Peace.